Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are going to go over chapter 6, which is titled The Incompatibility of Free Will and Infallible Foreknowledge. So far it's the shortest chapter, and I don't know if it'll be the shortest podcast, because there's a lot to cover, but we'll see. As we went over in the last chapter, Models of Divine Knowledge, a lot of the conclusions pointed to, especially when we talked about middle knowledge, at least so far, all the models that we have come up with aren't compatible with free will. And this dives more into that in depth. And before we go into the first section, is there anything you want to say to introduce this more than I have? These are two distinct problems. Previously, we looked at models of ways that God could know what is happening with contingent realities, and in particular, future contingent realities. That is, things that might or might not occur in the future. Now we're not looking at models that explain how God might know or how God does know. We're now looking at a specific logical issue. We're taking the issue of free will and asking the specific logical question, is it compatible with absolute foreknowledge? And it's very important that the knowledge is infallible. That is, it can't possibly be wrong. It's a logical feature of God's knowledge that he's not wrong about what he knows. And it's essential to that knowledge that it can be wrong. If it is just happenstance that God happens to know it, and it's not essential, then the logical outcome might be different on some treatments of this problem. And just to clarify, I'm sure most people got that, but we're just talking about a particular interpretation and examining that. We're not saying that this is the only possible model of divine foreknowledge, but we're talking specifically about infallible foreknowledge. Let's just jump in then. Well, I'll give an overview just because this is a shorter section. So there's two arguments we're going to go over, and one is called an unsound argument for incompatibility, and then the next is a sound argument for incompatibility. Let me explain briefly what a sound argument is. A sound argument is an argument that is logically valid, that is the conclusion, follows by rules of logical inference from the premises, And the premises are accepted as valid and true by the person who is assessing the argument. So you could have a logically valid argument. So, for instance, all unicorns have horns. This is a unicorn, therefore this has a horn. That is a valid logical argument, but nobody could accept the premises of the argument because nobody actually believes that there are presently unicorns. So there's a distinction between a valid argument and a sound argument. Sound argument. Premises are accepted as true, it's logically valid, and that's important, I think, to understand, because it may be that a person looks at this and and would say, well, you know, that's fine, I accept it, it's a logically valid argument, but the premises are problematic for me. All right, no, very good distinction. I didn't realize that either. Okay. All right, I'm going to first start out with a quote from Augustine, and he basically introduces the problem pretty well. He says, surely... This is the question that troubles and perplexes you. How can the following two propositions, that 1. God has foreknowledge of all future events, and that 2. We do not sin by necessity, but by free will, 
be made consistent with each other. If God foreknows that man will sin, you say, it is necessary that man sin. If man must sin, his sin is not the result of the will's choice, but is instead a fixed and inevitable necessity. You fear now that this reasoning results either in the blasphemous denial of God's foreknowledge, or, if we deny this, the admission that we sin by necessity and not by will. So, pretty much that's the problem, just as he said. And then you go into an argument A, and before I go over this, this section is called an unsound argument for incompatibility. Why are we giving the unsound argument at all if it's unsound? It's important to understand that there's an argument that's commonly made and it's easily defeated. And the reason is, is that it, it's the form that necessarily, if God knows that something is the case, then necessarily it's the case. Therefore, it can't be otherwise. That's an unsound argument. But it's the kind of argument that I hear people make often. And when it's easily defeated, people think that the argument regarding the compatibility of foreknowledge and free will has been easily defeated. It's analogous to the argument, necessarily, if this man is a bachelor, he's unmarried, therefore, this man is necessarily unmarried. Well, it's necessary that if he's a bachelor, he's unmarried, but it doesn't follow that he couldn't get married and fail to be a bachelor. So I want to make clear that when people give this unsound argument and then defeat it, I recognize that there are forms of the argument that aren't sound, and it's important to know that they aren't, and to realize that one is not really dealing with the strongest form of the argument. So, for instance, throughout the book and throughout what we do, philosophers demand that we engage in the rule of charity. That is this. When you engage an opponent's argument, you don't engage an argument that is weak or the weakest argument. You haven't really engaged the argument unless you have engaged the strongest form of the argument. And so in engaging arguments, always seek to find the strongest form. And until you've done that, you really haven't responded to the argument at all, because if there's a stronger form and you defeat a weaker form, you haven't accomplished anything. Well, and if I understand it correctly, the, the strongest form of the argument that we're addressing here is pretty much God knows, and that's just part of being God, and we can't explain it or understand it. Am I correct in assuming that? Um, no, that's regarding models of divine knowledge. In other words, okay. if we're explaining how God knows something— and, you know, what you've just elucidated is not an explanation of how God knows. It's just a recognition, well, maybe we shouldn't expect to know. Maybe we shouldn't expect to understand how God knows. <laughs> and I don't think that's the strongest model, because it's not a model at all. But it may well be true. It may well be the case that we don't need an explanation as to how God could know future acts that people will do freely, because we shouldn't expect to understand such things. Okay, so we're not addressing that argument because how can it be addressed if it's something that's beyond our understanding? That, and the fact that we addressed that in the last chapter, and the argument we're addressing now is not regarding models of divine knowledge or how God might know something. It's a positive demonstration that the assertion that God has knowledge of acts that people do in the future is incompatible with any notion that those acts could possibly be freely done. Okay. All right, let me just read the argument, and then we can go over why it's unsound. The argument goes as follows. God foreknows with certainty that an agent A will sin is compatible with that A will sin freely. And then you have a little middle thing here. It says the problem of free will and foreknowledge as outlined by Augustine seems to be stated as follows. If God foreknows that A will sin, then it is necessary that A will sin. If it is necessary that A will sin, then A is not free to refrain from sinning. 
if A is not free to refrain from sinning, then A is not free. Where do you easily defeat that? That's because the form of the argument is logically invalid. That is, the conclusion doesn't logically follow from the premises based upon rules of logical inference. Can you go back through it and show us how? Yeah. The assertion that it's the problem is in this premise, necessarily if God foreknows that A will sin, then it follows that A will sin. However, it does not follow that if God foreknows that A will sin, then A will sin is necessarily true. So if God knows something, it's the case that it will happen, but it doesn't show that it happens necessarily. I guess to find that, I think you have, but when we're saying necessarily, it's not like in your everyday and like, oh, I'm not necessarily doing that. We're saying philosophical necessarily means like, it is not possible that it is not so. If it's necessary in this sense, then there are no other alternatives and must be the case. All right. So I read the chapter, I get it, and it makes the next sections clear, but I'm still not seeing where is the problem again. So it's just saying it's not making a strong case that it's necessary that he will sin, just the fact that he will sin. And you can say, well, it's not necessary, but it just happened to be that he sinned. All that follows from the fact that necessarily if God knows something is true, then it's true, is that what God knows is true. It doesn't follow that what God knows is necessary. Just in the same way that it follows that if a man is a bachelor, he's not married, it doesn't follow that the man is necessarily a bachelor. All right, that makes sense. Um, is there anything else you want to say about argument A before we move on? No, except for people ought to avoid fallacious arguments. Very true. Wouldn't that be great if the whole world could do that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> is the type of mistake that this makes, does that have a name? Like there's like begging the question or... Yeah, the mistake here is the premises don't entail the conclusion or it doesn't logically follow from the premises that the conclusion is true. Okay, we're going to talk about now a sound argument for incompatibilism and do it based on necessity of the past. All right, so first, before we go into a quote by Aquinas, I want you to explain this idea that will be in the quote, you'll, so you'll see why we're talking about it then, but semantically possible. First off, I assume most people know what semantics is, but first explain what semantics is and then what semantically possible is, if you would. Okay, the semantics has to do with the fact that words entail certain meanings. Again, I'm going to go back to a man who's a bachelor. It logically entails, that by its very meaning, that the man is a bachelor. So this assertion, this bachelor is married, is logically fallacious because the very meaning of a bachelor is this man is not married. And if your second premise is this man is married, they can't both be true. And so semantic necessity means that the necessity follows from the meaning of the words themselves employed. Or the fact that this proposition, this man is not married, is simply a definition of what it is to be a bachelor. So when we use words, if we fully define those words, then we have a premise that entails a proposition. A proposition is an assertion about the way things are. So something semantically necessary, you know, if a person is a bachelor, then the man is not married. If a person is a husband, necessarily that man is married. However, it doesn't follow that if the person is a husband, then necessarily he is married because it may be that he was once married, but is now a widower. Semantic possibility entails the possibility that there are other alternatives entailed in the meaning of the word. Easy enough. So, so Aquinas says, every conditional proposition of which the antecedent is absolutely necessary must have an absolutely necessary consequent. Stop there. Let's first define antecedent and consequent. 
Antecedent means before. Consequent means after. So the antecedent in an if-then, the antecedent is the if part of the statement, and the consequent is the then part of the statement. So if this person is a bachelor, then this person isn't married. The antecedent is this person is a bachelor. The consequent is this person isn't married. All right, go on. For the antecedent is to the consequent as principles are to the conclusion, and from necessary principles only a necessary conclusion can follow. But if this is a true conditional proposition, if God knew that this thing will be, it will be, for the knowledge of God is only of true things. Now the antecedent of this is absolutely necessary because it is eternal and because it is signified as past. Therefore, the consequent is also absolutely necessary. Therefore, whatever God knows is necessary, and so the knowledge of God is not of contingent things. So let me explain. Aquinas is coming up with this argument. Essentially what he's saying is, in an if-then statement, if the if statement, the antecedent, is necessary, then what logically follows from that statement is also necessary. So if I say that I have a world on which trees exist, and for trees to exist, there must be water. So I have this statement, if trees exist, then there must be water. The antecedent is trees exist. It therefore logically follows necessarily that there is water somewhere around those trees. Now, that's a logical inference from what it is to be a tree. But Aquinas is now going to a different notion of necessity. It's not necessity of inference, though we have to have inference principles. What he's saying is the past that has occurred is necessary. It can't be changed. And necessarily, because what God knows is true, in the past, if God knew that I was going to rob a 7-Eleven today, and let's say he knew that in 1900, then it follows from the fact that God knew this in the past, that I rob, and I rob necessarily. I couldn't have any alternatives, because in order to have alternatives, the antecedent, that is what God knew, would have to be different or changed. And I don't have power to change what God knows, and what he knows isn't different. It can't be different, because it is in the past. And so what is in the past, he's saying, is necessary, and what flows from that past is also, therefore, necessary. So look at it this way. Let's draw a tree. There are two possibilities. I either rob, that's A, or I don't rob, B. Let's say that God knows I rob. Draw a straight line from 1900 to the present, I rob, and still a Mars bar, I still a Snickers bar, or whatever. There's only one future that is consistent with what occurred in the past, and that is I rob. I steal the Mars bar. Actually, robbery is different than stealing, but I'm not going to get technical in the legal sense here. You had There's, a gun, and then you forcefully took the Snickers bar there. <laughs> that would be robbing. Theft is just picking it up and walking out. In any event, the bottom line is that Aquinas is saying this. If in 1900, God knew that I was going to steal from a 7-Eleven today a Snickers bar, then the only reality that is consistent with the fact that God knew that is that today I steal a Snickers bar, and it's necessary in the same sense that the past is necessary. I can't change it. I don't have power over it. The only thing that is within my power that's consistent with that past fact is that I steal. And what he's saying is that follows from the fact that God can't be wrong about what he knows. You and I are, have a different status than God, and he's saying that it, since God is infallible, it can't be the case that God is wrong about it. It's what it means to be God is to not be wrong about what you know. And so it flows from divine knowledge, and if God is in the past, that what God knows is necessary in the same way that the past is now necessary. And you give a good example in your book, and this is going back to why we define what exactly is semantically possible 
because you say, for example, it is semantically possible that I will lift the Empire State Building, but such an act is certainly not within my power. Similarly, Aquinas suggests that even if God knows that A will sin, and it is not semantically impossible that A will refrain from sinning, nevertheless, it is still not within A's power to refrain from sinning, because to do so, A must exercise a power which no human can have, namely changing God's past knowledge that A will sin. So what we're recognizing is that this argument is not based upon semantic meanings. It's not the nature of necessity based upon the meaning of words. It's propositions and what they assert to be the case that, that are at issue. And that's exactly the argument. The summary that you just gave, that it's based on what Aquinas said, is a perfect summary of what I call argument B, the argument for incompatibilism from the necessity of the past. All right, so let's talk about past necessity a little bit. So when we think of the past, everyone can pretty much agree that the past is necessary because it happened. It's no longer alterable by anybody. I guess, unless you believe in some sort of science fiction branch off world that you could still mess something up. But in any event, this world, the way it is, it has a past and it's necessary to it and it can't be changed. Whereas when we think about the future, it's open, but others may argue with that. But you give an example of past necessity for Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address in the wrong year. Like a, a semantically possible thing, you could say Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address in. 1867. So that's possible semantically, meaning you can say it and it makes sense, but it's wrong because necessarily it already happened and Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address in whatever year he gave it, 1863. Yeah, and, and let me point out something. When I wrote this book, I thought that changing the past was at least logically possible. You know, I can imagine time travel where I go back into a time, and I changed the way things were. We see it in movies all the time. You know, Marty McFly just about brought about that he didn't exist when he went back. And movies where there's time travel are legion. But I've changed my opinion on that. I no longer believe that time travel is logically possible, and here's why. If I have an assertion that, you know, this is the past assertion, I was born in 1957 on October 15th. That is the case. It's a true statement. And let's say that I went back and changed it, that I didn't exist. Now, this is known to be logically impossible because it means that I did something that's inconsistent with the fact that I did it. I couldn't change the past I didn't exist, and I went back and changed that I once existed because non-existing things can't cause anything. But let's alter it a little bit, and instead of doing an act that brings it about that I don't exist, let's say that I go back and bring about an act that instead of having a paper route, I sit on my duff and play video games all the time, which would be an amazing feat for me since there weren't many video games when I was young, but just assume. So it would be both true that I did not play video games when I was young and also true that I did play video games when I was young. But these are logically incompatible statements. And if both statements are true, we violate the most basic law of logic, the law of the excluded middle. Both statements can't be true. There are people who believe that there are possible worlds that are all actual, and every possibility is actual. It's based upon quantum theories and so forth, but it seems to me that it's simply logically impossible. Unless one wants to give up the most basic notions of logic, changing the past is logically impossible, as well as practically and realistically impossible. We can't even think of a way that we could change the past other than going back and being present again at that time 
And we can't even think of a way to go back and be present at that time, except through science fiction contrivances like black holes. Though black holes won't deliver us to any particular time, what happens in a black hole is simply that the laws of physics break down, not that you travel in time. So I've changed my mind on whether or not changing the past or time travel are logically possible. I no longer believe that they are logically possible for the reason I just gave. All right. If you'd go over another example that you gave in your book, and then we can now switch it from President Bush to President Trump, because he's actually sitting in the same situation now. So, for example, the proposition that Trump will win the presidential election in 2020 is now, in 2017, not known to be true. But the proposition that Trump won the election in 2016 is known to be true. And so we have a a true past statement, and we have a statement about what will happen in the future. And so even if the statement just happens to be true, the notion is that the statement that Trump would win the presidential election in 2016 was always true. It was true in 1900. It was true in 1000 BC. The truth is always the case. And there's a truth about the statement that Trump will win the election in 2020. So if I make the assertion, Trump will win the election in 2020, many people think, God forbid, then it's true now. There's a truth about the statement, and that statement is always true. So what we want to say is that the truth of propositions isn't indexed or relative to time. If it's true at all, it's true at all times. That's an assumption of the argument. All right, well now let's just go over this argument B. It's kind of complicated, but it's a sound argument. Before I read it, I want to read what you actually say after, but it says... This argument, this argument B we're about to tell you, has some impressive merits because it is set forth so as to expose all assumptions essential to the argument, including the particular views of the nature of truth, past necessity, omniscience, and free will involved. So as I read through this, it points out the assumptions underlying each of the premises. Oh, and also it says, If the premises of argument B are accepted as sound, then human free will, in the sense of libertarian freedom, is not compatible with infallible foreknowledge. It has always been true that Rock, which is just some dude, I guess, will sin tomorrow, and it is possible to know this truth now. The assumption here is omnitemporality of truth. Second, it is impossible that God should at any time believe what is false or fail to believe any truth. The assumption here is infallible omniscience. Three, God has always believed that rock will sin tomorrow. Those are inferred from the first and the second premises. If God has always believed a certain thing, then it is not in anyone's power to do anything which entails that God has not always believed that thing. The assumption here is past necessity, like we talked about. 5. It is not in rock's power to act in a way that entails that God has not always believed that rock will sin tomorrow. And this, again, is from number 3 and number 4. 6. That rock refrains from sinning tomorrow entails that God has not always believed that rock will sin tomorrow. And this is from the second premise, and the thing here is semantically necessary truth, like we talked about. 7. Therefore, this is a conclusion, it is not in rock's power to refrain from sinning tomorrow. And we get that from the fifth and sixth premise. And 8. If rock acts freely when he sins tomorrow, then he also has it within his power to refrain from sinning tomorrow. Assumption here is libertarian free will. 9. Therefore, Rock does not act freely when he sins tomorrow. And that's from number 7 and 8. So, like you said, it exposes each of the underlying assumptions here. 
Is there anything you want to say about that before we talk about the principle of transfer of powerlessness? Sure. So let's look at the key assumptions. The first key assumption is what we talked about on the temporality of truth. That is that if a proposition is true at any time, it's true at all temporal times. So if I assert that Trump will win the election in 2020, there is already a truth about that statement. It's either true or false. I just don't know it, but God knows it. The second assumption is that God's knowledge is infallible. It can't possibly be wrong because it just is the nature of divine knowledge that it can't be wrong. And if it could be wrong, then we couldn't really say that God's omniscient to begin with. The third assumption, a key assumption, is that the past is necessary and can't be changed. And the final assumption is the assumption of libertarian free will. That is, that a person has power, roughly power to do otherwise than they in fact do. If any of these assumptions are changed, then the argument becomes logically invalid. If you reject one of these as a sound premise, then the argument for you is not sound. So you use these premises with these assumptions. Why? Is it because these are the strongest forms against it and you're addressing them directly here? No, I want to expose all of the premises that are necessary to generate the incompatibility argument. And as a result, I'm laying it out so that I can later discuss each of the premises in order to see if the premise is in fact sound, um, to see if it will withstand scrutiny. Because the first question that we ought to ask of any logical argument is carefully treated in this way, where I lay it out and show the logical inferences involved and what the premises are that are necessary to reach the conclusion, is I need to test each of the premises to see if I accept that premise and to see if this argument is sound for me. Now, there's another fact about sound arguments, and that is that they are person-specific. Many people will accept these premises. In fact, I believe that they're all intuitively true, and I believe that they're true even after sustained reflection. But every single one of these key premises that I've laid out has been rejected at one time or another by key philosophical figures. And so in order to discuss this argument in the way that analytic philosophers deal responsibly with logical arguments, I'm exposing every single question that we could have about the nature of the premises so that I can assess, scrutinize, and determine whether or not it's a sound argument. It is a logically valid argument. There's no question about that. All right. Let's just talk about the next thing I referred to, the principle of transfer of powerlessness. So... In the book, you say that it infers this, or it is a good example of this principle, or why do you bring in this? The argument relies upon rules of inference. When I say that this conclusion follows from the premises, there's a rule of inference that I'm adopting. And the rule of inference is roughly the rule of the transfer of powerlessness. And that rule is basically that if a person S cannot so act, that a proposition would be false, and S cannot so act that it would be false that if the proposition were true, then what follows from it is true, then S cannot act in a way that what follows from it would be false. So let me give an example here. Let's say that it will rain tomorrow afternoon and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no action you can perform that will prevent it from raining tomorrow afternoon. And I assume that most people will accept that they can't control whether it rains or not. It's also assumed that if it rains, then the streets will get wet, and there's also nothing you can do about the fact that if it rains, the streets will get wet. And I think most people accept that if it rains, they can't keep the streets from getting wet. Maybe a massive effort on everybody's you know, part. Umbrellas. Well, let's go get a lot of visqueen and lay it on every road we've got. But <laughs> um, it would be impossible if it rained very widely. <laughs> okay. 
And most people don't have the power or the resources to stop the streets from getting wet if it rains. But let's just assume that there's nothing you can do that will stop it so that if it rains, the streets get wet. It follows that it will rain and the streets will get wet and there's nothing in your power that will prevent the streets from getting wet. So what it shows is this is a rule of inference about what's within a person's power. And what it shows is if it's not in your power to prevent the fact that God knew something in the past, like that you would rob or steal a, a Mars bar from a 7-Eleven today, and you can't stop it, that if God knows that that's the case, that he knows that you're going to steal the, the Mars bar, and that it logically follows from that, that that is true, then you don't have the power to stop it from being true either. And so what we're talking about are rules of inference about what is in a person's power to do. And it's important to expose this rule of inference. There's been a good deal of philosophical discussion about whether this rule of inference is true or related rules of inference. All right, excellent. Let's move on to the next part that pretty much just finishes out the chapter. And there's just a few different things to go over. Not sure exactly how much time we'll spend on each. But the title of it is Some Clearly Unsuccessful Attempts to Escape Incompatibility. And Jacob, if you want to take the lead on this, go ahead and just start with David Hunt's quote or any anywhere you want. Yeah, so David Hunt says, One objection suggests that if God foreknows that rock will sin freely, then it follows that rock sins and that his sin is freely committed. So pretty much they're trying to say all God is knowing is that he's going to freely sin. So instead of saying that he will sin, he knows that he freely sins and, and tries to, to get off the hook there and that in saying that free will is incompatible with infallible foreknowledge. The argument that Hunt makes here commits the same logical fallacy as the first form of the argument that we looked at. What he's saying is that if God knows that I'm going to sin freely, it necessarily follows that I will sin freely, and therefore they have to be compatible. But that not only clearly begs the question, it's clearly logically invalid to make that kind of an assertion. Um, the question is, there's a prior logical question that has to be asked, and that is, is the assertion that God knows I will sin freely logically possible in the first place? But of course, he simply begs the question and doesn't ask that question. He just assumes that God can know that it's free. Before we go on, let's go over, because most of these commit the logical fallacy of begging the question, and just to define that, it means that you presented a circular argument in which the conclusion was included in your premise, which you can't do. A common example is, well, this is about the Bible. Well, I'll just read it, but they change it so it's not about God and the Bible, but about this made-up thing. It says, the word of Zorbo the Great is flawless and perfect. We know this because it says so in the great and infallible book of Zorbo's best and most truest things that are definitely true and should not ever be questioned. So it's like, the Bible's true because it says it's true in the Bible. Well, that's begging the question because your conclusion is included in your premise, and you can't do that. And so that's what he did here. He's saying, oh, he sinned freely, and so that God knows, all he knew that he was sinning is sinning freely, and so all he did was freely sin, but that includes the conclusion that his sin was free within its premise. Yeah, it's, it's working backwards. I have a conclusion, and here's how it'll work to get to that conclusion. Go on, sorry to interrupt. Let me make clear that David Hunt is a much more careful philosopher than our discussion here would suggest. I just want to make that a side note. Augustine also chimes in. He says, when God has foreknowledge of our will, it is going to be the will that he has foreknown. Therefore, the will is going to be the will because God has foreknowledge of it. Nor can it be a will if it is not in our power. Therefore, God has knowledge of our power over it. So the power is not taken away from me by his foreknowledge, but because of his foreknowledge, 
the power to will shall more certainly be present to me, since God, whose foreknowledge does not err, has foreseen that I shall have the power. Basically making the argument that just because God knows what your will is going to be, it's not taking away your power to have that free will. Yeah, and in fact, Augustine commits the very fallacy we just talked about. Yeah, He's... same thing. And uh, Brian Davies also brought up pretty much the same thing. For the simple fact is that if God knows at time one that P will freely do X, and at time two that God knows that P will freely do X, or if P were not free at time two, then God could not know at time one that P would be free at time two. Again, begging the question. And then we have Elder James E. Talmadge, who was an apostle in the LDS Church. He approaches things a little bit differently. He's not saying that God just knows our will, but he brings it out and compares it to being a parent. He actually brings up, Our Heavenly Father has full knowledge of the nature and disposition of each of his children, a knowledge gained by long observation and experience in past eternity of our primeval childhood, a knowledge compared with which that gained by earthly parents through mortal experience with their children is infinitely small. God foresees the future as a state which can naturally and surely will be, not as one which must be, because he arbitrarily willed it shall be. And now there's a few problems with this, if you go ahead and dive into those. Sure. First, I think what Talmadge is doing, and there are two arguments here. The first is that the mere fact that God knows something is going to be doesn't mean that it's necessarily the case that it will be. It simply means that it's the case that it will be. What he's missing is the fact that God's foreknowledge is in the past, and therefore what he knows is just as necessary as the past fact that he knew it. And he's making another argument, one that we discussed in a prior podcast. It's the argument from character. What he's saying is God knows our character so well that it's not based upon anything about the future or God's relation to either the past or the future. God simply knows us so well that he knows exactly what we're going to do. And we discussed the numerous problems with that kind of assertion, including the fact that, you know, the analogy to a parent is not very good because parents are often surprised by what their children do. Second, it's inconsistent with the possibility of being reborn and repenting because we might cease to be the kind of person that we were. And it may well be the case that we've never been in a situation like the one that we're now facing. So he couldn't know based upon what we did in the past, what we're going to do in the future. So there are a lot of problems with this particular suggestion by Apostle Talmadge. I had an example I thought of today when I was reading over this. Every year at my work, and a lot of people do this, you pick teams for the NCAA tournament, and you have to pick the future, basically, of what you think is going to happen. And all you have to base your decisions off of are either luck, or you look at how those teams perform during the regular season, and they're seeded, meaning they're ranked. That's what people do. They basically try to predict based on past character or performance of the team how it's going to be. And guess what? It's never, it's never happened. No one's ever had a perfect bracket, even by dumb luck. Yeah, but that still doesn't mean the Warriors won't win at all this year. Well, I'm talking NCAA. Anyway, I'm just saying there's just too many other factors, and people don't perform the same as they did in the past. They're, it's just not the same. Anyway, go on. Uh, I was going to say what you bring up there is another issue, because it's not an issue if a parent thinks that they know their child so well. There's you no, know, if we go to a gas station and I'm not watching him, he's going to steal a candy bar because he's done it every other time we've gone to the gas station. And then this one time, they're surprised. Like, oh, he, he did it. That wouldn't be an issue because we're fallible. But the second you switch that out with God, if God said the same thing, and then that time the child decides not to steal a candy bar, that would destroy 
God having perfect foreknowledge. And so, like you're saying with the NCAA tourney, based on the past, you can't perfectly predict the future no matter if anyone is going to be free. So moving on, uh, there's yet another objection that is brought up, and it insists that the argument for incompatibilism somehow wrongly assumes that God's knowledge must be the cause of the human choices. Quoting Talmudge again, he says, Respecting the foreknowledge of God, let it not be said that divine omniscience is of itself a determining cause whereby events are inevitably brought to pass. A mortal father who knows the weakness and frailties of his son may by reason of that knowledge sorrowfully predict the calamities and sufferings awaiting his wayward boy. Can it be said that the father's foreknowledge is the cause of the son's sinful life? So let me respond to that a bit. In order to respond to an argument that it's logically valid, you have to deal with the premises. The problem with this response is that it just is irrelevant to the argument. There is no premise in the argument that asserts that because God's knowledge causes the future, therefore it is necessary. In fact, there's no premise about causation in it at all. And so this notion is just irrelevant to the argument from the past and cannot show that any of the premises aren't sound. There's a few more quotes, people challenging the arguments. We also have a Bruce Reichenbach who argues that though we cannot alter the future which God foresees because for him it is as if already performed, we can freely bring about the future for the ground of his foreseeing it is our bringing it about. Hence, epistemologically, the freely bringing it about precedes and determines his foreseeing and believing it. That is, there is nothing for him to foresee or believe with respect to an agent's free act except what the free agent freely brings about. Let me respond again to this as the same problem as Talmage, and that is that it doesn't respond to any of the premises in the argument. It's simply irrelevant. It's just trying to give an explanation how it could be that God has foreknowledge. And it adopts the same kind of begging the question, and what he knows is a free act, but it's the free act that brings about his knowledge, therefore they have to be compatible. And so what is being suggested here is just something that is irrelevant to the argument and begs the question. I like Ann Pryor's response to this kind of reasoning. I'm just going to read it. I quoted it. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. For if a conditional proposition such as, if it has come to God's knowledge that X will be the case and X will be, doesn't require for its truth or for its conveying necessity from its antecedent to its consequent. In other words, it's not the case that the mere fact that God knows something doesn't cause it. That's not what conveys the necessity. And so he goes on, and what he says is, that is, the antecedent should be causally bring about the consequent. It is enough that the former cannot be the case without the latter being the case, regardless of why this is so. So what he's explaining here is, it doesn't matter what's causing what. That's irrelevant to this argument. The argument doesn't have assertions about what's causing what, and it doesn't matter to the conclusion. What the argument shows is that if God has past knowledge about what I will do that's infallible, then I don't have any alternatives about what I will do in the future. I will do, of necessity, what God knew in the past I would do. It's just showing that the kind of reasoning employed by Reichenbach is simply missing the point of the argument, at least this particular argument. I think that's a, it just smashes the competition. The fact of the matter is, if it's in the past and the past is fixed, the fact that he knew it in the past is now fixed, and therefore there's no freedom at all in regards to the choices. So, yeah. I think we can conclude at this point that those kinds of arguments that don't really deal with the premises, and they don't deal with any of the rules of inference in the argument, are missing the whole point of the argument. The kinds of arguments they're giving really don't respond to the argument. 
What the argument demonstrates is that it logically follows from the fact that God knew what I was going to do in the past, that in the future I have no alternatives but what I do. There's only one future that's consistent with the past that existed. And in order for me to be free, I have to have alternatives, and therefore there has to be more than one future that's possible. And so what the argument shows is that the two worlds where I have alternatives open in the future and that God knew something in the past infallibly that I would do are logically incompatible. And a response to the argument has to respond to that argument. It has to respond to the premises of the argument or to the rules of logical inference that are employed. And so we can wrap this up with that summary, simply saying that what we're going to do now are look at those responses that, in fact, look at the premises of the argument. All right. So, yeah, so I was saying in the next few podcasts or the next chapters, it just goes over each of those in detail and just to see if it will hold up to scrutiny. All right, so I think that pretty much wraps up that whole chapter. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.